On this week's episode, I chat with Clint Robert Murphy about men and mental health, dealing with ADHD and depression, as well as real estate investing and so much more. Hope you enjoy the show. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. This is host Melanie Locker. And first of all, I want to acknowledge that you are brave and amazing for being here. Getting ready to listen to a show about mental health and money is not easy. And I know you are ready for these amazing conversations. But before you listen, I want to let you know that all of my content is based on my own personal experience with mental health and money, as well as the experiences and expertise of my guests. I'm not a mental health professional or a financial professional, so content should not be considered professional, medical, or financial advice. As a trigger warning, please note that content on the show may include sensitive topics around mental health and suicide. So if you're currently in distress, please get in touch with a professional by texting HOME to 741-741. Thank you so much and enjoy the show. This is Melanie Lockhart, host of the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Today, I'm interviewing Clint Robert Murphy, who is a husband and father to two young boys, now aged 10 and 13. By day, he's a chief financial officer, and in the evenings, he reads, invests, is writing a fantasy novel series, and hosts the Pursuit of Learning podcast. Clint also supports other men on their journeys by facilitating a men's work group in his community. Thank you so much for being here and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Melanie. I'm looking forward to having a conversation with you today about mental health and wealth. Yes, two of my favorite topics. And we connected on Twitter and you were telling me a bit about your story. And I don't want to, you know, share too much of it without our audience. So I would love to hear from you more about your mental health story. I know you were diagnosed with ADHD and depression after a move to Bermuda of all places, which sounds interesting. I'd love to hear more about your mental health story and what happened and what was going on in your life at that time. Yeah, that's a great spot to start. So if I, if I rewind the clock about a year before that, everything in life seemed to be going perfectly. I had graduated university. So had my wife. We weren't married yet. We were both accountants working for KPMG. Financially, we were in good shape. We had two years earlier purchased a pre-sale condominium that we were going to move into in August of 2004, the summer of 2004. And we were being married in August. And In the fall, I wrote my final examination to get my designation as an accountant. At the time, it was a CA, now a CPA, in line with the U.S. naming conventions. And I was working on some very challenging jobs. And I was also taking, um, as a weight loss tool, I believe the pills were called Thermapro, and so they were doing probably funny things to my system. And the combination of the long hours on that job, the pills that I was taking, the stress of waiting for my exam grades, something started to shift in my mind. And I didn't recognize what it was. Looking back in hindsight, it was the spiral downwards. And so I ended up making a decision to leave KPMG. And I went to work for a small firm, understanding that I would be working on a certain type of clients, which never actually happened. 
And I attempted to go back to KPMG, but the timing didn't make sense. And so I suggested to my wife that after we were married, I wasn't going back to work at the company I was at. And so she's a lot more risk averse than I am and said, well, you need a job. And she had a cousin who lived in Bermuda and was working at KPMG, another accountant in the family. So we made the decision, we, we applied, we were accepted, and we were married in August of 04, and we moved to Bermuda in September. And while we were there, my performance was very low. And so up until then, I had always been a high performer at work. And almost anything I did in life, it tends to be my MO is to go very hard and to take a very, I call it a sportsman-like approach to life. Uh, growing up, I was not ever a top student. I never received good grades in school. I only played sports. And we'll come back to why that was the case, because it, it was actually how my parents decided to effectively medicate me for ADHD growing up without medicating me. And I only found that out later as an adult. And so my performance was really poor. I was having trouble at work. Uh, there was some discipline conversations and my wife's cousin, her boyfriend at the time, now husband, he took me out for a beer and he said to me, I don't know you that well, but from what I've heard about you from your wife's cousin, what we're seeing isn't who you are. And have you ever thought of reaching out to the EAP? And that was a bit of a wake up call, Melanie. Yeah. And I did, right. I reached out and because I, I having someone who was independent of me say, Hey, you don't seem to be the person I've heard about. Have you thought about getting help? And so I did. And the diagnosis that came back was depression and was ADHD. The ADHD I never medicated for. I tried it for a very short period of time. And I said that, that is not something I'm, I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Whereas the antidepressant medication, the way I've always described it is it brought me back to feeling like I had been before the depression. So there was, there were no side effects that numbed me or dulled me or made me feel less than in certain capacities. I simply felt the way I had been before I went downhill professionally. And so I've, I've remained on those antidepressants now for 17 years. And each time I attempt to think, oh, well, I've been good for, you know, five years. I'll wean myself off these slowly. I'll always feel fine for the first month or two. And then it just slowly comes back. I'll describe it as sort of a cloud of darkness just starts to pervade my thoughts. And I'm just a little more negative day by day until, you know, I don't want to get out of bed and I want to just pull the covers over my head. And then I say, oh, wait, I've got to get back on these. So for me, I, I think I'll be on them for the rest of my life. 
Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing those stories. And I just want to go back a little bit to your friend who kind of had an intervention with you in some sorts. And I think that's so important because it was kind of this very casual atmosphere. It was someone saying, Hey, I don't know that much about you, but from what I've heard, you're, you know, not this person. And I just want you to get help. And I think that's a great example for others who might be witnessing their friends or family on the same track, or maybe they see themselves in you being that person who is like, Oh man, maybe my friends have been trying to say things, but maybe not in the same way. And I don't realize it. And realizing that maybe getting professional help, whether that's counseling, whether that's therapy, whether that's medication is so important because with mental health, which is, you know, what I'm trying to do with this podcast of breaking down the stigma. Sometimes we don't even allow ourselves to even think it's depression or ADHD because Mm -hmm, the stigma mm -hmm. is so great that we can't even allow ourselves to entertain the thought that that's what it could be because the stigma is so strong. And so I'm so glad that you did take the advice of your friend and you got help and you know, I know we communicated about this on, on Twitter, but I think medication can be life changing and life saving. Mm-hmm. And that's a whole other episode that I plan on doing on the podcast at some point, all about medication. And just for a brief history, I've been on and off medication for half of my life, six years on, 10 years off, another four years on. And I've been off actually for a couple of months now and doing pretty well. But if and when I need antidepressants again, I have no shame going back again. And I think for people like you who are like, I'm just going to stick to this for the rest of my life. That is fantastic. Because if you find something that works for you and continues to work, like that is the best. And I love that you described it as it's not this numbing, dulling effect, but just brought you back to where you were before. And I think that's something that, you know, when I, went back on antidepressants after a 10 year hiatus, which, you know, that was a whole other thing. So it was like, Oh man, I managed for 10 years without it. How could I like have to go back now? But life happens, things happen and it's more than okay to go back on them if you need them. And yeah, when you get that feeling like the clouds are parting in your brain and you can see clearly again and your happiness set point is at a normal and not like a, apathetic, suicidal, there's no point in living life sucks type of place, which obviously that's not fun to be in. Like it's so refreshing. And so for anybody listening who feels like their happiness set point is not what it used to be. It's going on for longer than days and weeks at a time. Maybe it's months now. I definitely recommend looking into professional help, looking into medication. Obviously, there's so much to say about that particular topic. It's totally a personal decision whether you decide to medicate or not. I personally think it can be a complete life changer and game changer and lifesaver. And I know I've mentioned this on the podcast before too, but for anyone who's severely struggling, especially if you're suicidal, it's important to get help now because it can take up to four to eight weeks for it to be effective. And so I know when I went on it again after 10 years, I just woke up every single day with this impending sense of gloom and doom and not wanting to exist anymore. And it felt like I would have to wait forever 
for that to kick in, which obviously I made it and it worked. But like when you feel that desperate, four to eight weeks can feel like a long time. So I just want to reiterate that to people who maybe do need medication that unfortunately, while it works, it does take time to build up to work because you're literally changing the neurochemistry in your brain to try to get you back to that happiness set point that is more towards your normal. That's right. And there was so much in there that was great information. The main thing that I really want to emphasize is around the stigma. So I've had this issue for 17 years and I've rarely have ever spoken about it other than to very close people in my family or friendship circle. I'd say under 10 people. And in the last year and a half, I've been amplifying the message for a few reasons. One, with COVID, isolation equals amplification. Mm -hmm. So more and more people who may have had minor challenges with mental health, just a niggling at the edges, it's magnified. So they're dealing with depression for the first time. They're dealing with anxiety for the first time. And they don't necessarily have the tools to know how to deal with it, nor how to spot it. So that's the first thing. The second thing is my colleagues are doing that. And so the first thing I did was be very open with people I work with to say, here's what I've dealt with. And I shared the story that I shared with you to be able to say to them, if you have issues, you can feel free to come talk to me. I'm dealing with the same things. I'm here to listen. I'm here to help. And I've been through what you may be going through and there's no judgment. And doing that, it puts me in a little bit of a different situation because there, there still is the fear of the stigma. Oh, well, will the people that I report to say now you're, you're less than you were, right? You're depressed. Can I rely on you? Well, mm -hmm. I've been doing the job for seven and a half years. You've yeah. never had an issue relying on me. So you shouldn't have an issue relying on me going forward. And I've achieved a reasonable level of success in my career and in my life professionally, uh, financially. And I want to be able to share with people that you can achieve these things despite the diagnosis, despite ADHD, despite depression. Those don't define you. You can continue to define yourself if you're learning how to manage these things in a way that's healthy. Yes. And so I want to help break down some of those barriers now that I've reached this stage of my life. I want to be an advocate. And I, and I may have shared with you that another thing driving it is one of my two boys is going through the process right now of being diagnosed and he shares a lot of similarities to me. And that's the, the ADHD side of things. And so I'm working with him to understand what that means to help him create a learning program at school so that he can achieve at the level he's capable of achieving at, which I think is super high. And it's dulled by the inability to focus in on those things that he's not interested in. So it's, I want to help people that I work with. I want to help people that are going through something that I've been through in my life. And I want to help my son achieve as much in his life as he possibly can. Yes. I love that. I think that's so important. And, you know, it's so 
necessary that we break this stigma because so many people suffer in silence and they either won't allow themselves to entertain these ideas that they may have mental health struggles or issues, or if they do think that they do have that, they don't want to seek help or they feel like they can't seek help. So I think the more that we talk about it, the more we break the stigma. And I know so many people who are on antidepressants and medication and have diagnoses. I mean, that's becoming more and more the norm. And part of me thinks maybe this has always been the norm. We just didn't know it because no one talks about it. So I think that's mm -hmm. probably where, <laughs> where we're headed. So thank you for doing your part. And so I'm curious, you know, a few years after this episode of, of being diagnosed, I know that you also saw an industrial psychologist years later. And I'm so curious can you share what an industrial psychologist is and how that person helped you? Yeah, that was probably personally, professionally, and financially the most life-changing situation I ever went through. And so what an industrial psychologist in this situation did was assessed me and my leadership potential. So Myers-Briggs tests, IQ tests, um, verbal, quantitative reasoning, uh, interview me, and effectively at the end of all of that, write a report to say, who is Clint? What are his strengths? What are his weaknesses? What is his potential as a leader? And what are the holes in his game he can plug? And what I will always remember, and I use it a bit as my mantra, is they had in the bold at the top of the assessment, slow down, listen, be more patient and reflective. And so in terms of my life, that is something I've very much migrated towards. And when I look at the list of books they recommended, I'd put them into three key categories. The first book is the number one book I recommend anyone read in life. And it's called Feeling Good, The New Mood Therapy by Dr. Burns. And it's about cognitive behavioral therapy. I don't necessarily remember all of it. What I do remember is a couple key concepts and I'll call it thought auditing. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll start at thought auditing. And what that was is anytime, if you will, the monkey brain comes on and starts giving you a reason for why something's happening, write that reason down. On the other side of the page, write down five more logical reasons that you've actually put some thought into and then choose which one is the most likely. And what you start to realize is the monkey brain's not, not exactly actually friendly towards you. It's mm -hmm. almost never pointing you in the right direction, right? Yeah. Melanie said this because this. My wife said that because that. She asked me to load the dishwasher. She's calling me lazy. That's She's probably asking me to load the dishwasher because she just cooked dinner and she's tired and wants, wants some help. Totally yeah. reasonable. So if I put those two beside each other, I'm likely going to pick, oh, she's tired. She cooked. I should clean, right? And so you learn to stop giving assent or permission to wrong thoughts, which led me down the path to find stoicism, which was the forefather of cognitive behavioral therapy. So the founders of CBT had taken a lot of what they brought into it from stoicism. So that was number one. The second was emotional intelligence. And so I did a lot of work on improving 
my emotional intelligence. And the third was Buddhism. So they rec and this was their recommended reading list. And so the third was Buddhism and I'd already been doing some meditation practices. I'll call it, um, heart rate variability training with someone who I, I was working on with respect to concussion treatment therapy. I, I had a lot of concussions growing up through the sports we talked about earlier, which I think plays into eventually how my brain chemistry went in the wrong direction. And so I was working with him and doing some meditation through him, started reading the books on Buddhism. And that really, the combination of those three things led me to be calmer, a little bit more reasonable in my, the thoughts that I was willing to give permission to, and just generally allowed me to move forward in life to a much higher degree because I was making better choices, both personally and professionally. And even financially, I was making much better choices as a result, result of those three things. Thank you so much for sharing that. I love tactical and actionable tools that our listeners can use today. And I think really training the mind like you're talking about is so important because like I've said on the show before, often our first thought is not necessarily the right thought or the best thought, you know, especially sometimes given our histories, if we have a dysfunctional upbringing or um, dysfunctional relationships, sometimes our thoughts can be trauma-informed or trauma-based and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. anxiety-inducing. And that's a way to protect ourselves, but also it's not serving us in the present. And really, you're kind of anchored to the past and not letting the present and the, the relationships in the present kind of have all of that together in the now. And so I love that thought auditing exercise of really being like, my wife isn't calling me lazy for asking me to do the dishes. She's probably just tired and needs some help. And yeah, I think that's important because whether we're at work, in our romantic relationships or friendships, oftentimes we can read into things more than people are actually saying. It's like, they're really not trying to say anything with that. But nothing, that's not a, a, a dig against you. There's nothing part of that. And that's still something that I'm working on in relationships is getting rid of that kind of anxiety or like, oh my gosh, are they trying to say this about me? And it's like, literally, it's not about me. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's the other thing, decentering yourself and being like, you know what? Actually, everything is not about you. So <laughs> that's actually a really freeing thought because then, you know, you don't feel like everyone's out to get you when they say something or do something and you can have more freedom in your life. Yeah, I would say those are, you nailed two of the things. I have a number of principles I write about on Twitter and Instagram that I've seen from successful colleagues, people I look up to in life and that have helped me. And, and the first one, the most important one of them all is we are what we think. Our thinking is flawed. Fix your thinking. And so it's really understanding, well, how do I fix my thinking? And there are a number of ways we can do that. Reading, meditation, mindfulness, stoicism, Buddhism, cognitive behavioral therapy. And the last one that you also touched on is shadow work. And so it's figuring out what is in my unconscious that is driving me in life that I'm not even aware of because so much of our decisions are actually made unconsciously. 
And so the more we can learn what's driving us today from our past and going backwards and figuring out, okay, what was my childhood trauma? What were my woundings? What's my inner child doing that I'm not even aware of? And how do I bring that forward so that I can make the decisions today versus the child? That is a fun one to explore for people. And then the second one you nailed is it's not about me, Mm -hmm. right? Whatever anyone's doing, 98% of the time, it's not actually about me. And even when it is, so even when they're actually directing the thing at you, it's still about them. It's still there, their inner child bringing something at you that's actually a reflection of something about them. So that takes it even further. 99.8% of the time, <laughs> yeah. it's not about you. And if it is, you've got a couple of choices. They're either right and we can work on it or they're wrong and we learn to let it go. 98% of the time, it's not about you. So it's going to be wrong and you can learn to let it go. That other 2% of the time, we can use it to add value to our lives and improve. Yeah, definitely. It's just another data point to consider of, you know, how can this information serve me? How do I want to improve? Or yeah, do I not agree with this? And I can just let it go. And so mm-hmm. um, I'm curious, you know, with the mental health issues that you've described over your life and talking about wealth as well. How did your mental health affect your wealth throughout all of this time? I would say a number of ways, right? The the first way is, and it was crushing, when we made that decision to leave for Bermuda, we had just bought a two or one bedroom in den condominium in Vancouver, which is a very high cost of living city. When we bought that, it was not. We bought it in 2002 before the Vancouver run-up, the first run-up one, I'll call it. And we left for Bermuda for two years. We went to Toronto for two years, and then we came home to have a family. But when we came home, real estate prices had doubled. Mm. And so so I felt like I had ruined my family, like I had... I I had financially devastated us and that we would never recover. And that was dark. It was a really dark moment for me. And it took a lot to come out of it. We were fortunate enough. And I think I attribute this in some ways, ADHD helps me. I think of it 80% as a superpower, 20% as a challenge. And so I was always looking at things and opportunities. And just after the Olympics, there was an area in Vancouver called Olympic Village that was, to me, the best location in the entire city. And there was a developer who was selling homes at an extremely low price. And everyone was saying, well, no, it's a ghost town. No one's ever going to want to live there. You shouldn't you shouldn't sell the home in the burbs and buy in this location. And I thought, well, I'm five minutes from work. I'm on the water. All the locations are walking distance. Like how is this not going to be the greatest location in the city in five years? And so we, we committed, we went all in and, and we purchased a townhome. And that, led to a lot of stress because when I met with that industrial psychologist, it was to understand whether I would continue to work at the place I was going, whether I would have more opportunity or not. And based on the results, I talked to my boss and we mutually agreed that 
staying wasn't the best for me and I was going to pursue an opportunity elsewhere. But that meant that for a period of time, we were probably six months away from closing on this new townhouse and we still hadn't sold our townhouse in the burbs. And I had a runway in which I wouldn't be employed. So my stress levels, my mental health levels were deteriorating positively. As we started to approach the end of that runway, I did find a job. I actually ended up not being there for long. I, while I was, while I was with that company for a short period of time, I was interviewing with a great company for about six months that ended up being um, a dream job for me. And I was starting to implement all of the tools and techniques from the readings. And so I was becoming much more mentally healthy in time to close on this home. And then because I had clearer thought processes, I started to actually have a, a much easier time looking at the market recognizing when were certain things on a downward trend, i.e. where were the opportunities. And I started to invest quite heavily in real estate on a number of the down cycles. And so we were very fortunate to more than erase the deficit from the early run-up one. And we were well positioned that I'd say run-up two we had a we had a one or two rental properties plus our townhome that we were living in that appreciated significantly, and then for run up three, which was just the last eighteen months, we had six or seven um, homes under contract. So we were able to appreciate very well from that. So I think part of my mo is when I find opportunities that I'm bullish on. I am very, very convicted and I go all in. I don't, and I, maybe this is the ADHD, maybe it's my personality. A lot of the people I know, they like to analyze things to death. I come up with a thesis that I believe in. I create a plan and I just take action. And part of that is realizing I can't, I can't get stuck on number two or number one because then I'll just whirl away on it. So I follow maybe a bit more of a Jeff Bezos, get 70% of the information, be convicted about it, and then just take action. And so I see a lot of people stall on number two, and then many, many people stall on number three. And that's probably been, and, and I think it is partially the ADHD, I take a lot of action. And in, in the opening, you nailed that, whether it's writing a book, hosting a podcast, working full-time, coaching my kids in sports facilitating a men's group. Um, people say, well, how do you do all those things? And if you don't have ADHD, you probably don't know how you do all those things. Part of it is I can't sit still. I can't just watch Netflix for four hours. I would go crazy. I could maybe do that for one day, Melanie, right? Like every yeah. <laughs> once a month, I'll have a Netflix binge. But often while I'm Netflix binging, I'm reading a book or two. Like I, my brain isn't wired to be still. And so how I've learned to cope with that myself is to just always have things on the go. And those things have allowed me to grow personally, professionally, and financially because I'm reading the books, I'm coaching other people, I'm writing. And so that's all things that make me better at every other thing I do. Each of them adds to each other, if you will. 
Yes. Thanks so much for sharing and how, you know, these kind of challenges and diagnoses can be turned into a positive and you can learn to work with them in the way they work best in your life. And I love that you have become this kind of real estate investor and was able to kind of recover from that initial loss where it felt like you had financially ruined your family. And it sounds like this is a big part of your financial strategy. Would you say that that is correct? Yes, absolutely. So the the way I look at it is I like systems. And when I look at real estate, it is a very good long-term system, often referred to as the hardest way to get rich slowly. It doesn't move <laughs> yeah. fast, right? Yeah. It takes... And, and I often write on, on Twitter, and I don't know if people fully get what I mean by it, but effectively, it moves slow until it doesn't. And that's the importance of the compounding. When you first buy some of these rental units, the way I look at it, some of the ones I've bought, because I'm in a high cost of living city, when I first buy them, they don't actually cash flow yet. So I'm still putting money into them each month. And people in a lot of states in the U.S. is an example where a lot of real estate can cash flow right out of the gate. Don't necessarily get that strategy. Why would you do that? But the way I look at it is there's three components of value for real estate. First is the cash flow, which most people look at as in some ways the only one. The second is your principal pay down. And the third is your appreciation over time. And so I'm in a, in a location where over the last 20 years, you've averaged rent growths of, let's say, 4% per year. You've also averaged, because of that, you've averaged, averaged pretty high appreciation in values. So when I look at it, if I have a property and it's cash flowing, let's say, negatively $200 per month, so I'm putting in $2,000 per year, $3,000 per year. But because of interest rates, I'm paying off $20,000 in principal. Net, 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 I just made $17,000 that someone else paid. And my rents have gone up 4%. My asset is appreciated 4%. The IRR over time is much better than people would expect. So the more of these assets that I can get, when I'm doing it with just one, the return isn't great, but then you have two, three, four, five, six, seven. All of a sudden, the amount of appreciation you're getting in rents, principal pay down, and cash flow, because now you're five years later, the rents have moved up, you're not putting money in anymore. It's materially moving your net worth without you doing anything. So it's very passive. We outsource the property management. I am at the stage where the more I read, the more I understand. I'm starting to look at diversifying into cash flowing assets, but I would have to probably go out of province. And so that's something I'm a little nervous about. I'm going to do a lot more research, but I have a pretty strong thesis for it. And as you probably already know, once I have the thesis, step two is I'm creating the plan and then I'm going to take action. So I think in 2022, I'll close on my first out of province. And the benefit is in province, I might buy a townhouse. Out of province, you buy an eight unit apartment building. So a totally different stream. Mm -hmm. And Melanie, for some of the listeners, what I've realized over time is I'm trying to make it a parable that they can relate to is the assets I've been buying in real estate. Let's equate them to growth stocks. 
tech stocks that are, you know, you're not necessarily buying the cash flow today. You're buying, you're buying the belief of high appreciation over time. Slowly, I migrated to a different asset class. I started buying townhomes a little bit further out from the core um, right before COVID. So I was uh, very blessed and lucky when people decided they were going to move from the core into those locations. And I look at that more like a blue chip stock. So there's a little bit of cash flow and there's slightly less appreciation. You just have your steady, consistent appreciation over time. And then the third asset class, which is the one I'm now looking at with the out-of-province assets, is your dividend stocks. So you're looking, you're you're not looking at much appreciation over time. It might be very flat over a 10-year period, but you're getting consistent cash flow every month. And if I can use that cash flow to cover off the other assets and to just grow the portfolio and build that for um, financial independence, early retirement, that would be the plan is to have enough cash flowing assets to just cover your annual spend. Yes. Thank you so much for sharing all of that great information. I think that's such a great layout for people listening and so inspiring for anyone who is intrigued about real estate investing. Definitely check out the real estate investing episode with Ogechi of One Savvy Dollar, who also talked about this topic. And this was such a great kind of layout and loved hearing more about your personal experience and and your thesis as well. So thank you for sharing that. And something else I wanted to talk to you about is, you know, you mentioned earlier that you coach a lot of men and something that I'm passionate about, you know, with the Mental Health and Wealth Show is really breaking the mental health stigma in particular for men, because we just released an episode on toxic masculinity a couple of weeks ago about how toxic masculinity hurts men because men are told they can't have feelings, they can't cry, they have to be tough, they have to act a certain way. And obviously that can hurt women as well because that's where we get a lot of anger and violence and not the best relationships or intimacy. And it hurts everyone in so many different ways. And so I think it's so important for us to have a paradigm shift away from toxic masculinity for men's mental health and also women's safety and mental health. And so I'm curious for you as someone who coaches other men, what advice would you give to other men who they're building their careers, they're managing a family, yet they're struggling with their mental health? And, you know, maybe they're worried that I'm just like my dad, or I don't want my children to be like me. What would you say to a man who's in that situation? Yeah, it's a, it's a great jumping off point. So I, I facilitate a men's group as part of a community uh, called the Samurai Brotherhood in Vancouver. And there's a lot of locations actually worldwide now. There's online meetings. I've also had on my podcast, um, Traver Bohm. He runs a group out of Colorado that's in person and online called the Uncivilized Man Movement. And what he does, what we do, it's all about helping men become conscious warriors and effectively recognizing that there's the divine feminine, the primal masculine, and being able to access all of that as a fully functioning man. And so that's recognizing that we do have emotions. We can cry. We can be a fully emotional human being and show up in our fullness and learning how to access that. And so 
The number one thing I recommend for any man who may be struggling with mental health or for people who have a man in their life struggling with mental health is, is get help, is see someone, speak to someone. The problem is a lot of men are challenged by that. So you've said it a couple times. One of the books we, we read in the men's group is um, Under, Saturn's, Under Saturn's Shadow. And the first rule he has is men suffer in silence. And so we're taught from a, a young age, suck it up. You're not allowed to cry. Boys don't cry. Men don't cry. And so we've been trained to just lock it all away. And so the idea of going to speak to someone about our mental weaknesses is seen as weak. We can't do it. And so sometimes one of the first steps is go to a men's group. Mm-hmm. And what is a men's group? It's, it's not a place where a bunch of guys get together and talk about toxic men, masculinity and try to perpetuate that. It's a place where we, we gather and we're able to be vulnerable. We're able to share what's going on in our lives with a group of people that we identify with that allows us to access sides of us that we never access outside of that container. And so we talk about a lot of vulnerability. And something that happens there, Melanie is we give permission to realize we're not alone, to not suffer in silence. And so when a man's having a share and he's talking about the fact that nothing in his life is lighting him up anymore, I can say to him, brother, I'm worried that you're depressed. When nothing in your life is lighting you up anymore, that's a sign of depression. You're showing up each week and you're more and more listless. I think you need to see someone. And sometimes they're afraid. But when they're new to the group, you're able to, you're able to often say, let's take a pause for a second. Men in the room, let's say there's a, a 10 of us just to keep things simple. How many of you have dealt with mental health challenges? Nine people put up their hand, right? Everyone but that person. How many of you have been to a therapist? Eight people put up their hand. How many of you have been prescribed antidepressants? You know, six people put up their hand. And what that does is it breaks down that barrier for that man to get the help they need. And we do that in a number of areas, whether it's, whether it's depression, whether it's ADHD, we help them recognize what they probably already know, but they were unwilling to deal with themselves. Someone very close to me in in group was dealing with something with ADHD. And I'm able to say, hey, here's what I see in you that I see in myself. Here's how I think you might have to deal with that. You want the power of choice, but you also recognize that with ADHD, choice is very hard. So if you know that, Why don't we take the choice away? Why don't we just set, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the choice away. Melanie, I can run every day for one and a half years. I've done things like that or not drink every day for eight months. But if you ask me to run three days a week, I'll last a week. If you ask me to only drink when I'm at dinner with friends, that'll last a month. And then I'm drinking on a Wednesday by myself while watching Netflix. My ability to moderate or to make choices 
isn't there. And that's something that I've learned as I've aged. I've always referred to it as, oh, I can, I'm a, I'm a light switch, not a dimmer switch. And the more I realize with ADHD, the more I realize I can't, I can't have a like very prescriptive schedule, but I also can't give myself freedom of choice across a variety of categories. I need to have a very prescribed, this is what I'm going to do every day. I'm going to meditate. I'm going to run. I'm going to exercise. And the minute I deviate from that script, the script's over. And so recognizing that in other men and giving them an opening to say, here's what you can do. And so we do that in a number of ways. You already talked about, you know, I saw this in my father. I don't want to do it. One of the very first things every man does is they do a father share, right? Tell us about your father. Tell us his history. Tell us what it was like growing up with him. Okay, now we're going to start to ask you questions. Things that I see in my father that I see in myself are, just go for a couple minutes. Things that I saw in my father that I don't want to see in myself are, and you go for a couple minutes and you start recognizing, and then we then we do a Q&A on it. And you're able to say, hey, here's what I heard in your child's story, right? Here's some ways. And then you see over time as you work with the men, here's how your life with your father is showing up today as a man. And then you do a mother share. And that often ties into relationships, right? Uh, right down to the, to a guy who says, yeah, it, it took me two months to realize it, but the girl I'm dating literally looks exactly like my mother, right? And, and so you start to realize, well, how is your childhood rearing showing up in relationships? How is it showing up and how you show up as a, as a man? And we help each other see our blind spots. And so... Many of the people I've been fortunate enough to be in circle with, we, um, through circle, end up going to therapy for the first time, meeting a counselor, getting the help we need, and then progressing in life. And then you start to see the men show up completely different, their energy pattern, the way they're actioning on things in their daily lives. It all moves forward. Thank you so much for sharing that. That sounds like such a beautiful, lovely experience. And I think it's so needed, particularly at this time. And I just think what you're doing is awesome. So given all this information, where can people work with you and where can people find you? Yeah, where you can find me is I have a website, clint-robert-murphy.com. I believe if you do the pursuitoflearning.com, it also takes you to the same spot. I'm on Twitter as Clint-Robert, and my DMs are always open. So if someone has a question on mental health or they have a question on real estate, feel free to message me. Um, These are conversations I'm more than willing to talk about, no charge, just I like to see people grow personally, professionally, and financially. So if someone's wondering how to do that and and they want to learn, feel free to message me. And then I'm on Instagram as Clint.Robert.Murphy. Those are the main three spots. Oh, and if if they want to email me, clint.robert.murphy uh, at gmail.com. These are subjects I'm more than willing to talk about with anyone at any time just to help people move forward in life and not have to go through the rough spots alone. Ah, perfect. Thank you so much for sharing. Are there any parting words or lasting tips you'd like to share with our audience? I think the number one thing in this is what you're doing with your podcast is letting everyone know you are not alone. 
you will always think when you're in these dark spots that you're alone. No one's going through what you are going through. No one's been through the darkness you're in. And there are people. Melanie's highlighting them on her show. And so there's always someone who has dealt with what you're dealing with and don't suffer in silence. Don't simply try to push through the wall in the hope that you'll come out the other side, have the conversations with your friends, have the conversations with your loved ones, get the help you need. And for the strong people out there, sometimes they're the ones who are suffering the most. So friends, family, check in, right? And don't let I'm okay be the answer. Dig deep, right? Really get it, really get at the truth of how those in your life are feeling. And don't be afraid to tell them when you think they need help and push it. Love those tips. Thank you so much for sharing your personal story and all of your mental health and wealth stories and uplifting uh, tidbits and challenges as well. I really appreciate you being on the show and thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate being here and I look forward to talking to you on the pursuit of learning about your book. Yes. Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Want more content and support? Sign up for the Mental Hump newsletter and get our free mental health and money inventory worksheet. You can sign up at mentalhealthandwealth.com and also check out our other blog posts and podcast episodes. Also, we host a mental health and wealth hangout every other Thursday over Zoom at 5 p.m. Pacific to chat about all things money and mental health. The best part, it is free. If you'd like to support the podcast, it would mean so much to me if you left a review. And you can also support me at ko-fi.com forward slash Melanie Lockhart. And lastly, I want to remind you to do something for yourself to take care of your mental health and wealth.